myself again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn You look back and it's all in the past Hi and welcome to Steve Ray's Interviews. Uh, as always, I'm joined by a, a special guest and it's a good friend of mine, somebody I've known for many years, Professor Dick Hobbs. How are you? I'm all right, Steve. How are you doing? Yeah, great to see you, mate. And uh, thanks for coming on. Um, long time since we've met face to face. We've had many email exchanges. We've kept in touch with your son, uh, Paddy, as well, through your son, Paddy. But um, I, I do want to start because this channel tends to tend to concentrate on football before we get into the crime and the criminology and, and, and your new book. want to just talk about football. Your team is West Ham. Yeah, 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 yeah. I first went in 1958 when I was a, a, a little kid and um, when we had a proper football ground, that was. And um, yeah, I just it, it's just part, of, just part of my life, yeah. Got to be happy about last season. Terrific last season. I don't know how Moyes did it. I was one of those who, who didn't want Moyes to come back. I didn't think he was going to be good enough for us. Um, but he's, he's forged the football team. He's made the football team all working for each other, moving the ball around. Defending, moving—they're quick, they're fast. Um, I've never seen—I've never ever seen a West Ham team work for each other like that ever. Going back to the golden years of the sixties, I've, I've definitely not seen it. So yeah, it was a good good season, but we weren't there. Whether whether they'll still respond, whether they'll still react well and play decent football when we get back in a few weeks' time, get into the uh, get into the stadium. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know because when we turn when we turn against them in that big stadium, that big empty bowl, it's uh, it's not pretty. No, it's not. It's uh, it's been a strange old time with COVID, etc. You're right, and uh, it's again at Newcastle. Sometimes the fans are a blessing. Sometimes they can be, uh, you know, on the team's back, and it you know it takes a special type of player to be able to play in front of that kind of supporter, I guess. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, been some memorable games. We've done a we've done a retro show on here, and we've talked about some of the games against West Ham, and uh, I think the one that I always remember with uh, you know with with horror, I guess. Was um, the night that West Ham stuck eight past Newcastle and we had three goalkeepers? Yeah, 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 yeah. But very, yeah, I remember that. Remember that. Remember that quite clearly. I, I remember going over to uh, when, when I lived in the northeast. I remember going over to um, going over to St James's Park and um, not really knowing my way around the stadium and everything. And I ended up in the Gallagher end. <laughs> I, ended, I was in I was in Gall I was in Gallagher and I had to muffle anything. I see people talk to me about the game and everything, and I had to I had to just you know. People asking me at the time, Dick. Yeah, <laughs> I had to pretend I had a speech defect, you know. <laughs> that was it. Great stuff, mate. Well, you're a West Ham fan, and uh, I've got a lot of mates who are West Ham fans, so I'll not hold that against you. But welcome to the show. Great to have you on. And um, the reason I reached out to you really is is because obviously we've been in touch about a new book that you've got coming out called The Business, uh, talking with thieves, gangsters, and dealers. And uh, a good friend of mine, Freddie Foreman, uh, gave you uh, a, a big up on the uh, on the front on the front cover. Fascinating, and must have for those interested in my old line of work. Great, uh, great byline by Fred. That and um, yeah. just just reading through the um, the intro, um, you know, about the book. It, it it's, looks as if it's going to be a fascinating read. And uh, I know you've pinged one up to me, which I'm looking forward to read. But just tell us what the idea is behind this book and what it's about. Yeah, well. I, I... I've worked as an academic, um, looking at looking at crime, looking at organised crime, professional crime, and, and, and my speciality was always talking to villains. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't get into them via prisons or the police or anything like that. I, I just talked to people, and um, 
when those books come out, you know, they're fantastically expensive. I, I had a great career. Much of it was spent in, in Durham in the Northeast. And uh, I, had a, I had a terrific career. I had a good time. And um, but when academic books come out, they're very expensive, fantastically expensive, you know, 65 quid, 85 quid, whatever. And although these books, I, I won prizes for, for some of my books. And um, I always thought, well, you know, I'm always banging on about letting more, getting more working class people into higher education, into university. And yet I'm, I'm, I'm publishing books which cost 65 quid. Doesn't make sense. And a couple of years ago, I did um. Uh, I did. Some, I was doing some media stuff, and I was on the telly a couple of times. And the publisher came to me and said, "Would I write? Would I write a true crime book?" And that, I, I took that as an opportunity to to bring together some of my work, going back to to the eighties and and beyond, actually, before I became an academic, and just sort of bring it up up to date, bring it together from the various uh, projects, home office projects, uh, books which were which were in in libraries, in academic libraries, articles, etc. To bring the essence of them together and to bring the, the, the case studies and bring the words of, of various people, bring it to the fore and make it make it more affordable, make it affordable for, for other people. And I became aware, really, that you know, when I retired, I, I retired from full time academic work in this country, although I work in Australia a bit. I retired about five years ago and I started to um, I started playing football again. I started playing old man's football. And some of the blokes were asking me, so what do you do we're living in? And I told them and they didn't believe me. So I had to tell them, you know, what I'd done. And, and they, be, they were fascinated by it. I was saying, well, you know, I met this bloke and I met that bloke. And I, met, I was working with some armed robbers. And I was working with this, working with that. And they became fascinated. So I, I thought, well, actually, you know, people are interested in this. There, there is a fascination for it. So I put it together and I had the time to do it. And um, that's what I did. So I brought that together and hopefully, hopefully it works. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's great because I mean you, as you say it's not the first book you've written, but uh, this one seems to have some fair, some fairly notorious characters in, and many who I've actually met um, yeah. over my over my course of time as well. Yeah. So you know, in no particular order, I guess the the, the careers feature uh, in this book as as you always do, and I mean you know you you're from their stamping ground. That's what that's where you were essentially brought up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I never met, I never met them. I think I left school, but. The, the year they were the year they were put away but they were a presence uh, and everybody knew about them everybody knew about them even if they hadn't met them and um i mean one of the ways that i knew about them was that um my my nan always got the uh, east london advertiser and i can remember as a little kid like a primary school kid i can remember picking up the uh, picking up the east london advertiser and on the front page would be these um glamorous looking guys look like film stars fantastic suits glossy black hair and they'd be presenting a, a turkey or a bouquet of flowers to, to old age pensioners in a, in a, in a pub. Um, and it would say, Sporting Twins, Reginald and Ronald. So I read that. I thought, oh, Sporting Twins. I wonder what that means, you know. And you go on the back page and it'd be the same guys wearing a slightly different suit, um, presenting a prize to some skinny little kid in a singlet. And it'd be Sporting, Prince, Sporting Twins, Reginald and Ronald, uh, Cray, um, presenting a prize at Repsom Boxing Club or, or St George's Boxing Club, which, whichever whichever it was. So I thought, well, they're, they're interesting. I wonder what a sporting... I wonder how you get paid being a sporting twin, you know. So you knew about it. And then when as I got older, you know, the stories started to circulate and you started to know about them. Um, my dad worked uh, in, a, in a warehouse and um, at one point he, he was working under the arches by Valence Road and uh, before I was born. And... Um, 
he used to chase chase all the local kids off because they were always throwing stones in because it was a glass warehouse and they were throwing stones in. And um, he only found out later on that it was uh, it was it was Reg and Ron that they were amongst them that he was chasing off. So they were kind of just part of it, but they weren't. Yeah, what I wanted to get across with the, with the, the, the twins when I'm, I'm when I write about it in this book is that they, they weren't the kings of the underworld, they, as you know, Steve. You know, they weren't the kings of the underworld. They didn't dominate. They didn't dominate anything. I think their main um, their main genius was. I think they had a genius for public relations and violence, and the two together. Um, and they were also important because they they were um, they were big players at a time when there were changes going on in British society in the 1960s. You had the uh, the Gaming Act in 1960. Well, that, that opened the door for them to get into the West End, which is what they always wanted. Um, you had the the, the, the laws, uh, well, you had the, the, the end of capital punishment. That was important to them because they both would have been, uh, they both would have been executed by the state for the murders they committed. And also you had the changes in the laws regarding homosexuality. And that had a big impact. Their sexuality, who they hung about with, uh, their social lives, how they presented themselves, um, some of their money-making activities were all associated with their with, with their with their sexuality. So they were they were uh, products of a certain age, of a certain time. But the way they went about things was 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 like it was like something out of the nineteenth century. And and the East End, there was chunks of the East End that were like that. There were chunks of the East End that w- was like something out of Charles Dickens' time. And um, street fighters, uh, people like Jimmy Spinks, they adored Jimmy Spinks. Well, I used to hear about Jimmy Spinks and, and from, from various relatives. Um, all of those old street fighters, all of those old, old guys, and, and they weren't you know, nice people. That's something else I want to get across in this book. The idea that they're comfortable guys, good old Reg, good old Ron, you know, having a drink with Barbara Windsor and... and, and um, they were good to their mum. Well, there was more to them than that. Clearly, there was more to them than that. And um, so that's what I wanted to get, get get across. Not that they were the dominant people. Not that they ruled London's underworld. They didn't. They didn't. There was people around who were making more money than them. Some of their relatives are still making money to this day. And they went about things in a in a quieter way and uh, didn't uh, didn't go out their way to get David Bailey to take the wedding wedding photos. Uh, to put it that way, you know. Why does the myth continue around the careers? And I mean, you know, Reg has been dead now. 2000, him and Charlie passed away. Ronnie Cray passed away in 1995. Why is this still a myth? And why are people still continuing to make money, you know, from the Cray name? Well, we, we like to look back in this country. We're very nostalgic. You know, we, you and I are talking now the, the, the day after England um, England played in, in the final of the Euros. And, and all we heard in the build-up to the final of the Euros was, 1966 and, and two and um you know and, and other other sort of finals where we've been knocked out other other sorry other other um uh, big games where we've been knocked out but mainly about 1966 and there is an obsession in our country with the 1960s obsession with football music uh and crime um all the working class things actually football music and crime and there's a tendency to look back and say, well, the 60s were a good time. The 60s were a great time. And um, and people make up stories. They say things like, well, all these crimes that are going on now, they wouldn't be going on in, in Reg and Ron's time because they would have sorted things out. In fact, Reg said that on a number of occasions. You know, he said, well, I'd have sorted that. It wouldn't have gone on. It wouldn't have gone on. Well, no one was going to nick your DVD player in 1966. That's for sure, because DVDs weren't invented. Um, you know, 
it's a different society. It's a different world. And people like to, to look back and dream about the 60s as being wonderful and, 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 and uh, somehow more prosperous. Well, they were more prosperous because it was more work. You know, it was full employment. We had full employment in the 60s for the first time ever in working class in working class societies, particularly in the East End, which was a, a poor area. But in the 60s, it was buzzing. There was plenty of work. The docks were open. The docks were buzzing along. There was plenty of stolen goods going on. Everyone was well dressed. People were doing well. You didn't have you didn't have the poverty for the first time. And people look back and say, well, why was that? And they say, well, one of the reasons is Reg and Ron was about that. They somehow acted as community policemen and sorted things out, which is a nonsense. You know, they, they, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. So, and it's comforting somehow to sort of think that, you know, once upon a time, there were these daddy figures who would, who would sort things out for you. And, and they, you know, they, they weren't like that. They did the charity stuff. They did love their mum. They did all of that stuff. Yeah, of course they did. But, you know, they were villains. They were money makers, and that's what they were. They were villains, money makers, but they did have that penchant for um, for publicity, which uh, was probably the the end of them, really. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it was certainly the you know the, the PR which 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 drove them, and, and which continues to make them. You know, the, the the legend, I guess, carries the legend on. The Cray name became the big thing, and um, yeah, we've we've talked about that you know many many times. But um, yeah. in the book as well that you you know that, that comes out uh, this year, the business. It's um, again you, you cover another family who uh, were notorious in the nineteen sixties in London, and that's the Richardson family. Yeah, yeah. Richardson's were interesting. The Richardson's were a far more modern um, group of villains, a family of villains. Um, they were different from the crazy in so many in so many ways. I mean, both Charlie and Eddie, had, had, they had a, an ability to work hard. You know, they worked in scrap metal. They were hard grafters. They were also money makers, um, and they were also involved in skullduggery. They were involved in you know they were involved in in, in extortion. They were involved in protection. But they like they wanted to make money, and and Charlie Richardson in particular was a very modern villain. He got into fraud early doors. The Craze got into long fraud as well, but the Richardsons were masters at it, and they drew. He drew Charlie drew a group of very good fraudsters around him to operate. But they were making money from legitimate enterprises as well. They were smart people, and they were hardworking people. What I found over the years since I, since I sort of started doing uh, this kind of work was that when villains talk about businesses or they talk about, I'm going to start a business, what they actually mean is they're going to set a business up and then they're going to sit back and money's going to pour in. That's what they think business is. Charlie and Eddie weren't like that. They set businesses up and they grafted. They made it work. They made those businesses work. Uh, Eddie, seen a picture of th there. Eddie had a, had a reputation as a ferocious fighter, a well-known street fighter, uh, but he was also a grafter. He was in the scrap metal game, and he was, you know, in those days, it was a hard business. You had to have heavy hands. You had to be you had to look after yourself, and 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 that was that. They also went into the West End. I think what, as the craze did, but I think what was interesting about that era was that there's uh, one of the great myths about. Um, about organised crime is that it's all about territory. You have North London, South London, East London. Now, the Crays were like that. They had East London and that was it. That's what they wanted. Although there were other groups around in East London that they didn't go, that they didn't go near because it would have been too difficult. But nonetheless, that was their territory. And they, then they moved into the West End. But when you look at the way that, that the Richardsons operated, they didn't give a monkeys about territory. Yeah, they had their territory around, around South London, bits of South London where they were where they were prominent, not dominant, but prominent. 
um, and they did go, go into the West End. But they didn't care about territory. They would go wherever money, wherever they could make money. And uh, the Richardsons had one of their more prominent long fraud operations. I mean, it's less than a mile away from Valence Road, where the twins actually live. You know, they, they would they would operate wherever necessary. They didn't take any notice of that. So I think there's a great myth about the territory business, like it's cowboys and Indians, you know, Apaches here and the Sioux Indians are there. It's, it, it's not exactly like that. It starts off like that. Young men in gangs, in groups. You've got your territory. You control it. You run it. You move into the next territory through violence. You do that. But when it gets to the level that the Richardsons were working at, territory didn't mean too much. If they saw a money-making opportunity, they would go for it. Yeah, and and again ruled with a an iron fist, and and were joined, uh, you know, by by quite a, a team. It has to be said, of course, George Cornell, who met his end in the blind beggar at the hands of uh, Ronnie Cray, uh, yeah. shot in cold blood in front of uh, quite a few witnesses, and of course, they also had a a, a chief torturer, somebody who certainly played the part uh, until his uh, death uh, a few years ago, and that's Mad Frankie Fraser. Yeah, I, I got to know Frank a little bit. Um, I, I interviewed him a number of times and I had a drink with him a couple of times. And uh, he's the only guy I met in, in all the years, in what nearly 40 years of doing this, this, this sort of research. Frank Fraser was the only one I met who was pure villain. There was nothing about Frank that wasn't to do with crime. I actually liked him, mind you, I met him when he was an older man. And, but I was, a, I was a straight girl. And, and people like this, they'd never bothered with straight girls. You know, they would... They would they would take on other villains. I was just a straight guy, a bit of a mug because I worked for a living and had a salary, you know. That, that. But but Frank, everything to do with him was about crime. Everything had to do with him about crime. And I met him, first time I met him was in 1995 and I was making a radio programme for um, for Radio 4 about the end of the Second World War, uh, VE Day, and the way in which um, villains got involved in, in crime in the Second World War and, and what they did. And uh, we got to his... Um, we got to his flat, and myself and the and the producer, a guy called Matt Thompson, excellent guy, really smart. And uh, we got to, to to Frank's flat, and he was living in the Angel then. And uh, he intimidated the life out of us straight away. He was the the, the the scariest five foot four, five foot five geezer I've ever met in my life. You know, he was he was amazing, but he had a great sense of humour. He was a wind up merchant. We we pressed the entry entry phone and. Um, a little voice came from the other and he went, hello, John Major here, what do you want? And John Major was the Prime Minister at the time. And we both looked at each other. We thought, well, he is called Mad Frankie Fraser. Perhaps, you know, perhaps he really is completely bonkers. And he kept up with the, the mad the, with the John Major thing for quite a little while before he said, all right, boys, just, just, uh, just, just messing about. Come on up. And we went on up and he was stood at the top of the stairs and he had a smart pair of trousers on, sort of tailor-made trousers, you know, to, made to fit trousers and a, a smart white shirt on and he had this black glossy hair and he stood above us as we walked up to him and it was i thought god you are a proper gangster you know how to intimidate you know how to get an impression across and we got in his flat and he you know he wound us up a few other times but i found him you know he had a mind like a trap he had a fantastic memory really really sharp he was very um accommodating to us uh but wow, he, he was all—he was all crime. He could remember stuff from the 1930s. He could give dates in the 1930s when Jack Spot grasped someone up in a magistrate's court in, you know, in August 1937 or so. He, he knew it. He knew it, and he could—he could recite it. Um, and he was all villain. 
he was all villain. He was 100%, 100% villain. And uh, from, from my point of view, as a professional involved in sort of documenting this work, I found him fantastic company. You know, he was absolutely great. And then later on, I, I made a, a TV program and, and, and I worked with Frank on that. And he, he wound me up then. He got a geezer. He, he, by this time, he was he was living in the, off the Walworth Road in South London. And uh, he got a, he, he dressed a bloke up. He got a bloke dressed up as Sherlock Holmes. And I was sitting having a drink with him. And he used to drink uh, vodka and lemonade. And I was sitting having a drink with him. And this bloke dressed up as Sherlock Holmes with the big cape and the hat and the pipe kept walking behind me and staring at me. And it was it was just, to, you know, it was it was just a just a wind up. And that was he had a he had a wicked sense, wicked sense of humor. So he was an interesting guy. But, yeah, I mean, it was said that when when the Richardson's got uh, Frank Fraser on board, um, it was it was said it was like China getting the atom bomb. You know, because he was he was a fierce, fierce man, um, and um, yeah, he, he made he made the Richardsons uh, he made the Richardsons a lot of money, and that Richardson firm was was it was incredible. You know, had George Cornell, had Jimmy Moody, uh, who, you know, he he's he's someone worth noting with Jimmy Moody. He was one of the chainsaw robbers that when they when the um, security vans got so uh, really difficult to break into. Uh, Jimmy went into them with um, with chainsaws. He jumped on top. They'd stop the, the, the they'd stop the uh, the security van, jump on top, and and cut through with a chainsaw. And Jimmy Moody was involved in that, and then became a professional hitman. That's the sort of people the Richardsons had behind them. But they weren't interested. The Richardsons weren't interested in being villains and 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 sort of being photographed and on all that stuff. They were interested in making money. And that's what they did. And Charlie Richardson had this vision of making money. It took him to South Africa. He got him involved in mineral mining, which led him to, to being involved with the South African Secret Service and, and ended up him arranging for the Prime Minister, then Harold Wilson, the then Prime Minister's uh, phone to be tapped. I mean, Charlie Richardson was 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 something else. Was, was something else. Like the Richardsons were a very, very interesting, very modern group of villains. Very modern. Whereas the Crays were kind of something from the 19th century uh, with a bit of PR on top. You know, very different groups. Very different. Yeah, very different. And covered, uh, as I say, in your new book, The the Business. The, um, the start of your career wasn't you know, in criminology, was it? I mean, you, you did a you did a variety of jobs in, in your youth. Yeah, yeah. I, I left I left school, you know, as quick as I could. I left school in, in, in the late 60s, 68. And um, at that point, there was plenty of jobs going. So you didn't need loads of qualifications. And um, at that point in London, this is pre-computers, there was loads of office work, loads of really low-level office work. And if it was low-level office work, it meant you could go to work dressed quite smartly, which we were all into at the time. So um, off I went. I was a I was an office boy, and I did. I was an office boy for uh, in in different jobs. Office boy, messenger, filing clerk. God, I hated it. I, I you know I, I just I don't like office work. I don't like admin or anything like that. But uh, I did it because we all did it at first, and uh, I did that for a few years. Hated it. Then I became um, I started to do labouring work. I worked as a dustman, road sweeper, warehouseman, um, and and eventually I I started to go to night school. And um, I did them um, uh, two O levels and an A level over 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 a two year period at night school, and um, I did that, and I qualified as a teacher, and I worked as a teacher for four years. In, in what in what subject? I, I, I was in a I was in a primary school. I was teaching ten and eleven year olds in a private in, in, a, in a in a primary school in Forest Gate, and um, 
actually that was the start. Some of the people that I met, some of the parents that I met, because I ran the football team. And that was all, all I enjoyed was running the football team. I wasn't a very good teacher. I mean, God, I'd like to apologise to those kids now for, you know, because they should, I didn't teach them to read or write or anything. We was always organising. If we, if we had an art lesson, it was it was de designing a new football kit. <laughs> if, if we did if we did geog if we did geography, we were looking at you know football teams in other countries and things, which was all right for the boys who liked football. But if you didn't like football, you'd add it in my in my class. You know, it was useless. So that was it. But we did win. We did win the um, uh, Newham, Newham South League uh, Primary League. So. That was good, but a lot. Some of the parents that I met then um, were useful to me later on. They were good. They became good mates of mine, and um, including a guy called Terry Jackson. I, I taught Marshall, and uh, Marshall Jackson was this uh, this this naughty little ten year old boy. And I, I was giving him a bollocking one day. The summit he'd done, throwing summit or or being cheeky or whatever it was. I was giving him a bollocking one day in the school hall, and. Um, I saw a shadow at the corner of my eye, and this figure walked past me. And this was Terry Jackson. This was his, this was his dad. He was a, a, a well-known local geezer. He was very, very well-known, Terry. And he, he was like, I always described Terry Jackson. He was like Bob Hoskins on steroids. <laughs> you know, he was, he was fantastic. And 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 he, he used to roll, you know, he rolled his shoulders and he walked. As he walked past, he said, "Mr. Obs, if he gives you any trouble, just give him a clump." You know, it was it. And that was my first introduction to uh, Terry Jackson. Marshall was a, a, a little midfielder. He was my midfield midfield general. And uh, Terry, uh, sort of bloke he was. He was, a, he was a a bit of a local face, you know. And um, Terry went out and bought a, a, a van, a transit van. It was an old security van, actually, which we all thought was funny. And um, he painted it in the school colours, which... Unfortunately, I think it was green at the time or purple or something. I can't remember. It's something unusual for him. But he painted it in the, with, by hand with a, in the school football team colours, threw a few cushions in the back, and then the kids had a, had a team coach. And that was it. We all went off to play games in the team coach. The kids didn't want to go in the car with their dads. They wanted to go in Terry's van. And he was that sort of a bloke. And we became good friends. And this is the late 70s, 78, 79. And uh, we're still good friends now, and uh, I'll, I'll be seeing him later on later on this week. And he he introduced me to a lot of people, and uh, that was it. But yeah, I, I was a school teacher for just a few years, three four years, and I decided I, I wanted to go to university. I wanted to go to a proper university, and I wanted to see what I could do. So at the age of uh, thirty, I, I managed to bluff my way into the London School of Economics, and they they said to me, "Are you paying your own fees?" And I said, "Well, yeah, somehow I will do." And they said, "Welcome." So it was, you know, I had the money, so I went in. It was about, I think it was about fifteen hundred quid, which was a lot of money then. So I bluffed my way into it, and it took off for me there. I just found something I was good at. I found, you know, I was I was looking at crime. I was looking at working class culture, and and, and finding that uh, a lot of the stuff that was written, I didn't think was true. I didn't think it was correct, and it was an opportunity for me to for me to do something. And so at, at, at thirty, I went to uni, and from there I went, I, I moved on and. Uh, did a PhD at Surrey University. I got a job at Oxford University, which was weird. I mean, I, I didn't get on with Oxford, and Oxford didn't get on with me. That was a, it was a very, it, it was a bit of a clash. It was a bit of a clash there, but I had to stick it out because by this time I had a mortgage and a child. I was married, mortgage, child, the, the, the full works, and so I was. Yeah, I, I had to, I had to stick at this job, which I hated at Oxford, and then I. I, I 
got my PhD and I turned my PhD into a book called Doing the Business and um, it won a prize as the best sociology book of the year. And the world opened up to me a little bit and I, I got offered jobs and um, I ended up in 1990 uh, coming up to Durham. And um, that was great. I mean, Durham, the, the North East generally for me was, was very, very good. I stayed there. For, I was, we lived in Durham for 16 years. I worked at Durham University for 15 years. And um, fantastic. They left me alone. I, I, you know, I, I think I met you in about 1991. Yeah. I believe it was. And, um, you know, there was opportunities. They, they gave me space. They gave me time to do what I wanted to do, to research what I wanted to do. And um, by that time, I got interested more in organised crime because doing the business came out, which was about ordinary people doing ordinary crime. It was about um, it was about the docks. It was about ducking and diving. It was about wheeling and dealing. And it came out doing the business came out in um, 1988. And it, it when it came out, it was at a time when um, Only Fools and Horses was on the telly. Minder had been on for years and years and years. Canary Wolf was being built. The East End was starting to get demolished, knocked down and changed. And it was in the news a lot. And, and you know, obviously I hadn't written this book deliberately with that in mind. Um, I, I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't close to Margaret Thatcher and uh, who, was, who was pulling all the strings at times. But it, it kind of hit a lot of hit a lot of nails on the head for people. And the book, the book did very well for me. And I, I got media work out of it and I got a job out of it. I got this job. At, I got this job at Durham. And uh, in the book, there was people that I'd met over the years, met in the different jobs that I'd done, different work that I'd done. Um, there was people that I deliberately researched, deliberately spoke to. But it was also detectives, because I was interested in, in entrepreneurship, and I was interested in the way that detectives were also uh, entrepreneurs. It, just was, it wasn't just the Dell Boys of this world. Detectives were like it as well. And um, I spent a lot of time with, um, with detectives, who at that time... Well, they could do pretty much what they wanted to do. They they were they weren't controlled. They weren't under surveillance all the time. They they, they were expected to go out and get their own work. So you know, I'd meet up ten o'clock at a police station somewhere, have a have a quick chat, go in, have a coffee. They'd deal with their messages, and then we'd be in the pub by eleven o'clock, half past eleven, and then we'd be back in the office picking up some messages. And at uh, three o'clock, we'd be in some drinking club or a boozer somewhere. And, and and off it went, you know. I used to go missing for days and days on end. It was it was it was a uh, it was all right. My liver was was okay in those days. But and I remember once I came back. I came back. I've been out somewhere. I, I got out of a cab outside my house about six half six in the morning. I felt terrible. And I, as I was throwing up in the gutter, my next door neighbour came out and hard working, you know, family man who was off, just off to work. And he took one look at me. He said, "You've been doing that research again, Dick." I'm like, yeah. Throwing up, you know, and that was that was sort of what I did really. I sort of hung around with people, with with detectives, but mainly with with ordinary people who, at that time in the East End, were doing the business. They were ducking and diving. They were making a few bob for themselves, and um, and that was it. Got to Durham, and I started to get involved more in doing stuff on professional crime, organised crime, and I uh, started to get some research grants, which led me around the country a bit. But London was always my base. Did do some stuff on the northeast, but it wasn't as in depth as as I could do in London because I knew people I could move around London yeah and, and, and I was safe you know let's segue uh, into the police side of things for for a five minute spell here and just talk a little bit about you know corruption 
within yeah. within the police force and I guess connections to to masonry because I'm I'm, I'm a Freemason. I've, I've been a Freemason now for for nine years. I'm the worshipful master at my lodge. Um, I see. It, for me, it's a charity thing. You know, I I did Rotary International for many years with my granddad and my dad, and you know, I, I was asked to go in the Masons a few years ago. I say eight nine years ago, and I. I actually knocked it back first time round, but then when I went along to one of the, the the festive boards, the meetings, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's it, it's a bit of a lads' club. You go along, you've got to learn a bit of ritual. We raise money for charity. That's what it is. There's nothing yeah. suspicious. Have I gained anything from Freemasonry apart from friends? No. Have I ever inf- made any influential business deals or managed to influence anything else in Masonry? No. Um, but. I think there's a there's an aura and there's a sense possibly from maybe it's the 60s and 70s, the days of the, you know, the Crays and the Richards in, in particular, that potentially when masonry was a thriving, you know, a thriving community, now it's a dying community, I would have to say. It's it's become very linked with crime. And we're seeing, you know, there's a story recently which has come out which is, is, is trying to connect, you know, Freemasons and, and bent cops. Is that something that you found in your in your you know your research over the years that that was something back in the day, or that it's something that's still continuing to this day? When I started to do my work, I started to do my research in the eighties, and there've been huge uh, corruption scandals in the Metropolitan Police uh, through the seventies. Uh, Robert Mark, who, who, who was the commissioner, tried to clean out the CID, and uh, there was a lot of sackings, a lot of early early retirements. And some big old scandals, which, uh, yeah, they, they're bubbling under now. There was the, the Bank Cops uh, series on BBC Two just recently where, where it raised its head again in the City of London Police in, in, in particular. The guys that I were, at, were, were hanging around with weren't Freemasons. Um, the activities that they were doing, some of the activities they were up to, um, would have been regard would now be regarded as corrupt, but in those days they weren't. I mean, the sort of thing they were doing was that uh, you'd be in a pub. There was one particular pub I used to go into, and uh, there was a, a a group of CID officers who would be, always be in there in the evening, and you didn't know if they were working or not. Sometimes they were on their way home out to the suburbs where they lived. Um, sometimes they sometimes they'd be working and they'd be dropping it and they'd be hanging around with uh, some serious villains, some well-known local businessmen. Um, and they they would be they, they would they would be really they'd be socialising, but also if there was a bargain going, they'd have some of that as well. I mean, I can remember sorting out all kinds of things for them as, as a way of getting access. I got access to the police by providing some stuff for them, uh, put it that way. And um, that, in in that in that sense, you know, I was I was trusted by them, and, and I was taken into their homes, and they showed me all kinds of things. I've taken it to offices and introduced to people, and it was really really useful. So I was so I was trusted. So then there was a level above that, you know, it would just be instead of getting hold of a little bit of rookie gear for a, for a cop who was doing his house up or whatever, there was a level above that where if you wanted information, and there were people there getting information out of the cops, you know, it was a question of, well, you know, am I on this list? This is pre-computerisation, by the way, or early doors computerisation. So everything wasn't on computer, it was bits of paper. So if you got nicked for something or you, someone in your family got nicked, uh, you could have a meet with a cop, have a nice drink. Is there anything I can, this is my problem. Is there anything I can do? Um, well, yeah, and um it will come to you know 50 quid 100 quid 250 quid whatever and, and what will happen for that well the file will go missing 
the fire will go missing. And it was as easy as that. You could just go in and, and pick up a, a green fire when it, was, it wasn't there anymore, which when it came to court, there was no evidence and therefore case dismissed. That was the sort of thing they were after. And as a result of that, there'd be, um, as a reward for that particular policeman, there would be a, a, an envelope behind the system in the toilet. So you had that level. The level that you talk, you're talking about Freemasonry, and and it was at that particular time. You know, still I used to hear little rumours about it, but I, I didn't kind of connect with it. You you were talking about the organisation of armed robberies. You were talking about um, files going missing for an armed robbery, um, maybe where someone's been shot. Certainly when firearms have been used, you were talking about it at that level. And one of the things that, that people need to remember is that London has always been a very cliquey place. It still is. It's a cliquey place. Even working class culture, it's who you're in with, who you know, which as far as me as a researcher is concerned, is, is, is very interesting, you know. But Freemasonry just adds another clique to that. It's not the only clique. It is a clique. And I can remember when I was doing the research, one of the cliques that you needed to connect with if you wanted to know about crime that was going on in the air, in, in the area was a clique that operated around um, Freemasonry. Um, the local one of, one of the local working men's clubs and the local trade union, which was the dominant trade union, which dominated the council uh, and also dominated the docks, what remained of the docks and remnants of the docks at the time. So Freemasonry was kind of part of that game. It was part of that cliquey game. And, um, but in terms of my connection to it, it was at that level above. It was at level above what I, what I was ever going to get into. Although, you know, one of the things is that we've ne we're now going for a period with, with a Daniel Morgan case uh, and with, uh, as I say, with the, the three-part series on BBC Two about bank coppers. And they, I believe they're going to make another series, by the way, on Ben, uh, on ben Coppers, so, so I'm told. Um, it's retrospective. You're looking back 30 years. And we were all much more blatant 30 years ago. You know, you could go into a pub. You know, I knew, I knew pubs that could go into. And on a Friday in a particular pub, that was where you could buy as much stolen meat as you wanted. And everybody knew. Everybody knew it. There'd be another pub where it was tobacco. There'd be another pub where something else was going. Another, it was blatant. No cameras. There's cameras in pubs now. You can't do that. Cameras on the street. Cameras on buses. Cameras outside people's houses. You can't operate that way. It was a blatant. It was very, very blatant. So if you're looking at a case now, if you're trying to uh, a cold case from the 1980s or 1970s, there is going to be evidence there. There is going to be evidence, but it's not going to be the sort of evidence that. that there's going to be a lot of rumour and there's going to be a lot of anecdote and it's going to be very, very, very hard to, to make the connections, which is why in the Daniel Morgan case, um, they, they've not, you know, they've, they've not arrested, well, they've, they've not got anybody for it. They've had several cases and spent millions and millions on the investigations, but they've not got it. So it, it, it was different. In them days, it was just in your face. You know, it was, it was just in your face, but it didn't leave any trace. There's no, there was no computers. There was, there was, there was no films. There was no cameras. Uh, people didn't have phones. People, you know, different world, different world. Yeah, completely different world. And that's, of course, what, you know, again, you cover in the book, The Business, which comes out uh, later this month, available on Amazon and all good bookshops. The, the transition of, of crime 
I guess, over the years and how it changed. Because I think anybody who's just taken a casual interest in crime won't realise that, you know, criminals have been very adaptable over the years. And, you know, they went from, you know, long firm frauds to, you know, and jump ups to, you know, and robbing warehouses and, you know, eventually doing the, you know, running and controlling drugs. It's been a big change. And I guess as well, you probably touch on, you know, modern day, you know, no longer could you have two twins from the East End, you know, running around, running the East End of London. It's it's because it's a it's a metropolitan now. It's a cosmopolitan now of, of people yeah. in different races and different criminal organisations from around the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when I was a kid, um, everybody was involved in crime in, in some way, in some way, even in a minor way. And, you know, my family were very respectable, working class people, um, uh, shied away from crime, didn't want anything to do with crime. But I do remember, I do remember my mum was a, a dressmaker and she worked from home. And I can remember being in bed at night and there was a knock on the door late at night, which didn't happen in them days. You know, who's knocking on the door? Someone must have died because didn't have a phone. So you had to go around someone's house and say, your nan's dead or your aunt's dead or whatever. Oh, what's happened? It's 10 o'clock at night, there's a knock on the door. And it was a, a bloke from, it was a relative of someone who lived over the road who was a docker. And uh, he had a, a load of cloth for my mum. And she was, she'd go through this pantomime and it, it happened a lot. I kept my ears open for it. It was happening a lot. She'd go through this pantomime. Oh, it's not knocked off, is it, Billy? Oh, Billy, it's not stolen. I don't want anything that's stolen. No, Mary, it's not stolen. I got it at the auctions. You know, the auctions, like I got the last lot at the auctions, you know. Oh, all right, then I'll have it. And then it came and she used it and, and that was it. But to her, she wasn't doing anything wrong because Billy said it was from the auction. She knew it wasn't, but that's, that's not the point. So the whole stolen goods thing in those days, it was either you were you were stealing it, you were selling it, you were moving it on, or you were consuming it. You were part of it. And it was just the way it was. It was a very benign activity. There was no violence involved in it. There was no, you know, you didn't have, have to have people outside your house with guns to protect your your um your stolen goods network or anything like that. It was just like people get on with it. You know, there was a woman who lived down our street called the, down the end of our street. We used to call her Mrs. Popeye because she had no teeth and, and, a, and a fag hand in her mouth and tattoos all over her arm. And she did look like Popeye. And she was always standing outside the front of her house. And all these vans and cars and things, would lorries would be pulling up her house all the time. Stuff would be coming and going. And I, it took me years before I realised what was happening. And she was, you know, part of stolen goods. She was buying stolen goods. And her speciality was um, we had Madison's meat pie factory was was close to us which is a lovely smell and um she'd buy meat pies she'd buy um nylon shirts and uh perfumes out of yardies at stratford cheap perfume out of yards at stratford so and that was it so when you went you know christmas time you buy perfume from your mum it had come through eventually it had come through from mrs popeye the shirts that we all wore the shirts we wore for school all these horrible brian nylon shirts she was knocking out that's what we. That's what. Uh, that's what I, I ended up wearing, and I did eat a lot of meat pies as well. And it was the same. It was the same for everybody around here. Yeah, it's what people did. It's just what people did. But it changed. You know, it started to change. The docks closed down. Cameras started to come in. A lot of the um, the warehouses uh, shut down because of the docks. It took a few years for them to go, but they went. The lorry parks went because lorries. You know, uh, lorry parks before. Um, 
before cameras were, were, were common, that was the place to go. You know, I knew people that were doing doing lorries and they were experts at doing lorries, clearing a lorry out as a jump up merchant or whatever. They loved it. They started, that started to change. So it became less amateur. It became less amateur. This is saying anybody could do it. And a lot of people would go for it when they were young men. They would go for a stage where they'd be nicking stuff, selling stuff, buying and selling everything. And gradually they'd grow out of it, but or maybe not. Um, but it was an amateur activity. They didn't regard themselves as professional villains. That all that started to change. The opportunities went, factories went, the the, the warehouses went, the lorry parks went, the docks went, and the docks were just a fantastic. I mean, the stuff that gear to come out of the docks was marvelous. The stories I've got about that. And it coincided with unemployment. And that coincided with a rise in the drug trade. And there were people who, who were no good as thieves. They were drunks. People didn't like them. They were signing on when there was a lot of work. Um, no one liked them. As families, they, they, were, they weren't, weren't regarded. Suddenly, they, they got they had money. Suddenly, they'd get involved in the drug trade. They got involved in buying and selling drugs. Suddenly they were making money. Suddenly there was bars going up at windows. Suddenly there was guard dogs. Suddenly there was big four by fours drive pulling up outside people's houses, you know. And the whole character of the place started to change. Instead of being a, a communal activity, ducking and diving, a little bit of stealing, a little bit of buying and selling, suddenly it became very individualistic. Suddenly it became very, very um, tight, very tense, lots of anxiety. And violence came with it. And it, it just changed. It just changed. Some people you saw that the, the runts of the litter suddenly became drug kingpins, so-called drug kingpins. Uh, people who hadn't made very much money were suddenly driving around in big cars and had jewellery all over them. Uh, other people who were who have been thieves couldn't couldn't adapt. They couldn't adapt, they couldn't change, they couldn't make the switch to this new market. So it, it, it really it really did change. But also the area changed as well. Um, once people could buy and sell, could, could, um, could buy and then sell their council houses, they moved out of the area. You had regeneration, you had houses knocked down, you had estates knocked down. New populations came in who brought their own ducking and diving. They brought their own versions of ducking and diving. But when these new populations came in from other parts of the world, one of the things that did happen there was um, if they came from a culture that didn't use alcohol, the pubs became empty. And the pubs in the East End were marvellous, as they were in all working class areas. You know, with proper pub, community centre, football team, darts team, pool team, you know, people singing at the weekends, all the rest of it, all the ducking and diving were going in the pub. That changed. Those pubs went, those pubs became empty, those pubs became emptied out. Um, if they had a, a, a preservation order on the pub, um, mysteriously overnight they had a fire, damned a lot. Um, yeah, or they were turned into flats. The, the area changed, and, and all working class areas are changed in every big city. In every big city, it changed. The East End, in particular, because the amount of money that was coming in to regenerate it and change it, Canary Wolf wiped out the Isle of Dogs, which had been a solidly working class area. You know that that was that. If you look at what we now call Docklands, uh, along from um, Canary Wharf, right away along to into Silvertown and Canning Town and all, and all that area, um, you know, it's just been obliterated. It's just been a, a, absolutely obliterated. And it's taken the people with it. The people have gone with it. Uh, the pubs have gone with it. 
the ducking and diving, the way of life has gone as well. It's changed. But if you want to adapt and you want to make money from crime, and young men tend to, um, drugs drugs is the way to go. Yeah, I'm, I guess we all, as as observers of crime, people you know, people who do a nine to five do like a little bit of escapism. And I guess the, the most recent story, which got everybody's um, you know heads heads turned, minds ticking, and and got everybody's attention, was that the Hatton Garden robbery and the people who took part in it. Did this surprise you? Because you know, when you when you look back at it now, I mean, obviously there's been three films made about this already. Um, yeah. But, I mean, what a story this was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when it happened, I was in Australia. I was working in Australia. And, and the Aussies loved it. The Aussies thought this was fantastic. You know, before they knew who'd done it, they just thought it was it was great. Well, you know, it was um, it was a bank holiday weekend, I believe. Well, that that's, tends to happen over the bank holiday weekend. It's not that these clearly, these clearly were not amateurs and they probably weren't Albanian master burglars as the pink panther gang which is the first people who got linked with it i think uh hilarious and your mate dave courtney he, that was that was funny what he said he said it had been it had been um was it it been been put into uh sausage skins all the jewels had been put in sausage skins and shoved up a rice rice horse's ass and shipped out of the country i loved it you know the boy has got a great sense <laughs> of humor and he was clearly whining them up and they they went for it and i hope they paid him a lot of money for that great gag you know a great gag and there was all these stories flying around but it had to be the usual suspects i didn't think they'd be that old um when brian reader's name was linked with it i knew brian reader's name from from way back uh long before i became an academic um i knew his name from way back um as a receiver as a receiver of stolen goods you know he'd been he'd been that that's what he that's what he did uh that's what he did and a couple of the a couple of the other a couple of the other guys uh, as well from uh crime one of um one of Fred's old old, old mates was in, was involved with it. So I, I was I was surprised by the age, um, but not by their backgrounds. A lot of nonsense was talked about it. The idea that they, they they've, they've retired and they come out for one last job. You, you don't retire, you know. You don't retire. And these guys actually hadn't retired. They were always at it. They were always involved in it. The fact that they were they were elderly, um, yeah, it's a good story and. The Michael Caine version of it, I think, is quite good. He's he's, he's pretty good in it, as he as he always is. But um, it it, it was described by the co the cops loved it because the cops knew who'd, who'd done it pretty early doors, and um, this made the flying squad look good. And the flying squad needed um, publicity. They really needed publicity, some good publicity, because they had had some bad publicity in the past. So the flying squad were able to come in and look at the local police and say, well, you didn't properly investigate when the alarms went off and everything. And they made the local police look like mugs. And they came in as the great experts and cleaned up. And they have, you know, they've absolutely milked it, absolutely milked it. It's, it, is an in, it is an interesting story. Nobody got hurt. They've been well punished for it and are still being punished for it. Um, in a, in a way, the amount of publicity it got has worked against them in terms of the sentences they've got. It, it, it's, worked, it's worked against them. It's a shame. But the, that story went around the world. I got contacted by several several media outlets in the States, France, Italy, Australia. The Australians came over, especially with a team, to film a documentary on it. They, they had their own documentary. Um, I was in that with Bobby Cummings and a um, uh, mate of mine. And, um, yeah. It, it's it's a it's a great it's a great story. 
there will always be those big heists every now and then. There will always be those big heists. It's become very difficult. I mean, armed robbery as a profession has gone out the window now. It's, it's yeah. Who's, who's going to do that? You know, who's who's going to do that for all kinds of reasons? It's it's not a, it's not a trade that you want to be involved with. Uh, but every now and then there will be a big heist, um, and that was the the big heist of of, of that particular of, of that particular time. Uh, I think Brian Reed was a very interesting guy, and, and I hope one day someone writes about him in a, in a considered way uh, rather than, than, a, than a glamorous way or makes a film about him in a con, again in a considered way because a lot of these guys you know who are, who are clever criminals they're quite dull boring people they're quite dull boring people you know they, they don't splash the cash in clubs they've not popped in champagne it's not all about strippers and cocaine it's 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 a business it's a business and and Brian Reader was a professional villain of the old of the old school and if he'd have stuck, if he'd have stuck with that heist, I think they'd have got away with it. They'd have got the, they'd have got the, they'd have got their money for for the uh, for the loot, um, and they would have, and they'd be spending it now on a beach. Yeah, but because he dropped out, it blew it. Yeah, I would, I would agree one hundred percent. Another person who's you know quite well known to me, I, I, I still visit this guy, still keep in touch with him on a on a regular basis, is, is Charlie Salvador, uh, aka yeah. Charlie Bronson, aka. Uh, Michael Peterson and um, you know for the crime that he committed um, we understand obviously that he's you know in, in the past he's he's misbehaved in prison and um, you know he's, he's been punished duly for that but this guy served with the exception of a, a about 90 days on the outside 45 years in prison and 33 years in solitary confinement yet he's still got all his marbles he's still a great laugh um, Still, you know, he still you know, last night rang us about what bet he was going to get on for the England game. He's, he's, you know, is it time to let Charles Salvador out, Dick? Do you think? I mean, could, could you, you know, if if he's given the right kind of rehabilitation, do you think he, he deserves a chance? I personally do. I do. Um, I, I do. I, I, I think it, it's bizarre what's happened with him, but he's bizarre. Let's be fair; he's bizarre as well. I mean, he's he's. Um... He has been his own worst enemy. If he wanted to get out, then, you know, play the game a little bit, just a little bit, or don't play the game he's playing. Just go neutral for, for a little while. That that would that would be now. I don't think he's been well advised. I think, the um, again, the glamour and the publicity hasn't helped him at all. When you look at actually what he's done, as opposed to what he's what, what he suffered, uh, you know, he, he hasn't done that much to 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 get the sense to get the sentence that that that, that he's, he's received. In terms of letting him out, yeah, I'd let him out, but it needs to be under a strict supervision. Fair enough, you know. Politically, it'd be I think politically it'd be impossible to let him out. We live in a in in a in a culture at the moment um, whereby uh, there are votes to be won by by appearing to be tough on crime. And um, if uh, if Charlie came out and he had um, an argument at a petrol station or in a pub with someone, it would be blown out of all proportion and there would be political repercussions for it. And the political rep repercussions could, in could involve uh, one of our lovely politicians losing their jobs. And they won't risk it. They won't risk it in the same way that they, they, they couldn't risk letting the craze out. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it's, you know, it, it, they, they can't do it. It's a political issue. I mean, you know, Reg was only let let out um, by, by Jack Straw. 
just just be, just before he died, really. Compassionate grounds. On, on compassionate grounds. It, it's that is the world that we live in. That 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 politically it becomes very difficult for these politicians to do the right thing, and and it's crazy. It's crazy that he spent that amount of time in prison. If they did let him out, it'd have to be under strict supervision. And the probation service, the way it is at the moment, I don't believe that, that they would commit the resources to, to giving that supervision. Uh, but it could be done. It could be done if they were committed to it. But there's no votes in letting Charlie Bronson out. And, and yeah. I think that's the horrible, nasty truth about it. It's not about justice. It's about politics. Yeah, sad, sad, but true. Uh, does it surprise you? Um, we're coming up to the last five minutes. Does it surprise you that a lot of uh, former criminals have gone out and done interviews on podcasts like this with, um, you know, the likes of James English, Sean Atwood, um, you know, and, and a lot of them are having disputes. I mean, I've been slap bang in the middle of one recently between uh, Stephen Sears and, and Paddy Conroy. Um, it, it's, it's been ludicrous, really, uh, some of the stuff that's been said from, from, um, from Conroy's side towards Stephen. But it's, you know, it appears that Stephen's not allowed to have an opinion. And, and some of the stuff that I've put out there on, on their behalf and, and laid it out in layman's terms, um, it's just been attacked and attacked and attacked. But this isn't just a, a Northeast thing. I've noticed that in the last six months, there has been fallouts between former criminals in Liverpool, Manchester, and in London, and they're all putting themselves out there on their own social media channels and all having a go at each other. Did you ever think, and I mean this again as, as, as a professor in criminology, this must be bizarre to you to see a modern generation doing this. You would never have seen Freddie Foreman and Eddie Richardson switching a computer on and going hammer and tongs for, for the world to see. No, it's a, it's, it's a weird it's a weird world. The whole social media thing is something I'm very very wary of, and and, and, and I, I don't fully understand it. And uh, when when ex villains, who, who let's be fair, most of them are of a certain age, and um, have done their you know they've 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 done their they've done their crimes and done their done their times, uh, and and they've got a lot, they've got actually got a lot to offer in explaining what they did. The best of them don't glamorize it. They explain what they did. They explain, you know, what what it was like in prison. Um, they explain how their lives have changed. They explain the impact of it. Um, and and I th I think there's a place for that. I think there's a place for that. These disputes when they come up, I think are a result of a lot of these these guys have got big egos, but they had to have big egos to do what they did. They had to have big egos to do what they did. I know people who um, did horrendous crimes. People died as a result of their activities. Um, they've spent time in prison. And something happens to them in prison where they decide that they're not going to go away again and they're going to change their life. And they don't become reformed. They don't necessarily discover some religious cult and become part of it and then, you know, go around saying that they're reformed criminals. A lot of what they actually do is they take that ego and they apply it to doing some good. Um, a friend of mine, Bobby Cummings, uh, Bobby, dangerous man. I remember his name from when I was a kid. He's the same age as me, Bobby. And I remember his name coming up. Wow, you know, what a dangerous man he was. He did some horrendous, he did some horrendous crimes. He's a man with an ego, but he, he applies that ego now to, he has applied that ego to his, um, to, to, to doing good work for, for people who come out of prison and providing, you know, it's down to him that 
ex-prisoners can get um, can get mortgages, can get insurance and that kind of thing. He's done that. And he's able to do that. He's a man of energy. He's a man of ego. And a lot of these guys that we're talking about now are, are intelligent people and they're, they're people of, of, of ego. Um, and, and it's a shame that they can't apply it in some way. Even if it's just telling the story as it is without glamorizing it or making them sort of give, bigger themselves up or anything like that, just saying the way it is. And I think that for me, that's the role of social media. And when it works well, when it, you know, you do it, you do it yourself, it, it does work well. When people are just talking about their lives, not glamorizing it, not turning it into a big joke. I think it's informative and I think it's important to do it. And it's, it, I, but, you know, to answer your question, I, you know, I can never imagine well, I, I can't imagine the twins doing it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think the twins would have adapted. The twins would have got into this. They'd have their own podcast. They'd be on, you know, they'd, they'd be on. They'd be on all the celebrity programs as well. They'd be on, you know, in the jungle, in the jungle with the twins. Bigsy, <laughs> Bigsy probably would have embraced it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Some of some smart guys know, know what they're doing, but the ones who have really made their money, serious money, and you know, they take the money and they. They quietly, they quietly move away. They quietly shift. They quietly shift away. But yeah, of all, the, of all the changes in crime, etc., that have gone on, these these kinds of things on social media is a, a, myst, a mystery to me. A mystery. I don't get it. I don't get it. Last question: of all the, of all the criminals you've you've met um, in your in you know during your research, is there anybody you ever you know you were a little bit wary of or, or concerned you a little bit? Um, when I first met Frank. Fraser, yeah, he, he concerned me. You know, he was a little chap, um, didn't make any difference. He had something about him that made him like 28 foot tall. You know, there was something about him. Um, yeah, there's been, a, there's been a number who aren't big names. As I say, most of the people that I talk about and I write about in the business, they're not big names. They've, they've done this, they've done that, and they talk to me about what they've done, and I hang around with them, got to know their families, got to know their kids, their grandkids, and in one case, great-grandchildren. So I've just been around them a lot. Um one or two of them initially I was uncomfortable with, uh, but that's all. You know, I think the thing is you've got to respect people. Um, and I, I was I respected then. And eventually they respected me. They trusted me to tell me things that they maybe wouldn't tell most other people. And um, I think if you come across respectfully to people, they will, they will talk. And the fact that someone's done crime and maybe done things that I think are horrendous. In some cases, that is the case. They've done things that are horrendous. Is irrelevant. It's my job to. to it, it was my job to to take that material and to get it out to the get it out to the general public. But I think the thing that's come across for me most is the way that some of these people adapt. I mean, one of the guys that I talked to in, in the book, he was a jump up merchant. He was jumping up in the back of lorries. He was doing things, ducking and diving, selling things. Real, a real boy, you know. He was, he was great to be with, great company and all that. I lost contact with him for about five years or so. Then he turns out he was involved in, he, he was um, in cult, involved in the biggest counterfeiting case the UK has ever seen, uh, which was, it was so big, it was a threat to the fiscal well-being of the UK, it was described by the judge. And how do you go from jumping up into the back of the lorry, grabbing a, you know, a, a bag full of, a, a box full of shirts or whatever, to a counterfeiting case, count, counterfeiting case, twenty pound notes uh, involving tens and tens of tens of millions of pounds, and it was that sort of thing, that was more frightening in a lot of ways. Thinking, 
God, how do you cope with that? How do you deal with that? He ended up going to prison at the age of 58 for the first time. He went to prison at the age of 58. How do you deal with that? That was more frightening. That was more kind of scary. But generally, no, I've, I've always been treated well by these guys and I've treated them well as well. So it's been it's been mutual. Great stuff. Uh, fascinating hour. I'm sure everybody uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. And don't forget, you can get uh, the business. Uh, you can pre-order it now. I think it comes out July the 22nd uh, on Amazon. Uh, we'll be out on Kindle as well and in all good bookshops. And if you can't wait uh, that long, then why don't you go on and buy Doing the Business, which is available now. Uh, well worth uh, a read that book. Uh, crack and read. And, and I could talk to you all day, Dick. We've, uh, we've, as you say, we've known each other since the early 90s, mate. Uh, thank you very much for coming on love to the family and uh take care and stay safe mate thank you steve appreciate it thanks mate cheers